Please turn your Bibles with me this morning to the book of First John and chapter 2 as we make progress in the first episode of the Apostle John. First John chapter 2 from, I'll be reading from verse 12 to 14. And I'll read the text twice. I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So I'll read the text again, but I'll sort of divide the text up for the purposes of our uh, look into this text. I read from verse 12 again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 13a. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. B. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. C. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the father. Verse 14. A, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. B, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let us pray. Our heavenly Father, creator of the heavens and the earth, sovereign ruler of the universe, we have come before you this morning to hear from your word. We have come, O oh God, to receive that which you inscripturated for our own edification and our growth in grace. We ask, O oh God, that as we sit under the preaching of your word, that you grant clarity to our hearts, that you save us this morning from distractions of all kinds. And we ask, O oh God, that your word will come to us with compulsion, with power, with conviction. In Jesus' name we have prayed. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. One of the greatest causes of conflict in human relationships, as per my own experience and my observation, is communication. And this cuts across all kinds of relationships. It cuts across marriage, where I'm told that at least 50% of the problems that arise sometimes come from misunderstanding, where one person does not understand what the other person is saying. And even at work, professional work environments, at one time I witnessed two men thrashing it out in a very corporate, they were dressed corporately, but one slapped the other person, and it was all because the slapper was the supervisor of the slappy. 
and the slappee did not accurately communicate what he had done to the supervisor. And then one thing led to another, and the slap went forth, and then there was all manner of HR issues and all of those things. To communicate clearly is one of the most difficult things for people to do. And even in church, let's come home to ourselves. One of the issues or one of the source of our problems in church is communication. For example, maybe you're in the kitchen and you are preparing fellowship meal and you are trying to organize things and somebody said something and uh, what the person said was not clear. And all of a sudden, there's a beef, a small matter. Or you are playing football on the pitch for the men and then somebody shouted one kind of thing and there are issues because... People either do not know how to communicate clearly or people do not understand what has been communicated. Something happened to me one time in church. I saw, I saw a brother and I saw him sitting close to a lady with another little child by their side. And, you know, it's one of those, those awkward moments that arises when you're meeting people either for the first or second time. And I said, uh, how is your wife? Is this, this is your wife? Madam? I said, no, this is not my wife. And then it was, it was so awkward that she had to just quietly step out. But the man was so, was, uh, how would I say, socially apt. So he quickly switched the whole thing and it was not so awkward. Now, I have imagined if I had said such a thing in a text message. Maybe I, I sent a message to him and I wrote a lot of things. And then in the middle, I said, how is Sister A your wife? Maybe what he would be thinking is, what's this guy saying? Is he insinuating that I am having a relationship with this person? Is he insinuating that this is this, this is this, this is this, this is that? So we see that communication is, is, can be a problem. Can be a problem if it is not done right. In the time when John was writing, I believe this was one of the issues that John foresaw that his writers would, and it was anticipating the response of his readers to his letter. Because from the beginning of chapter 2, the apostle has been saying some very, very hard things. From verse 3, the apostle began to talk about obedience. And you know how John is. John doesn't twist words. He's saying that whoever does not consciously obey the commandments of God is not a Christian. Look at verse 4. He uses such words as that person is a liar and the truth is not in him. And when John comes to verse 7, he begins to talk about the family of God, that if you are a Christian, you are now a part of a family. And he's saying that if you do not love the members of that family, your Christian brother or sister, you are in darkness. He doesn't say there's a possibility that there is indwelling sin in you. He says, you are a liar if you don't obey God. You are, you, are, you are in darkness. And he said, the light is not in you if you fail to love your brother or sister. And these are the things John has been saying. And I want you to imagine that you came to church, to the church on that day when the letter of John was read. Because this was the custom of the early church. When an apostle writes a letter, the letter goes round to churches. And so when the church, the, 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 the letter is being read in church, and then you know that yesterday you quarreled with somebody in church, 
And these words come to you. That if you don't love your brother, you are in darkness. Or perhaps as you were on your way to church, you beat the traffic lights. <sighs> and there was on your way to church, you just remember that yesterday at the office, something happened and then you, you said something out of place. In fact, this morning you argued with your wife and you, you, said, you said something wrong. And then you come into church and the letter is being read. Can you imagine what will be going on through your heart? And so John is anticipating this from his readers. That there's a possibility that after they have read so far to verse 11 what he was saying, some of them will be discouraged. Some of them who are even truly Christians may begin to doubt that they are Christians. And John is being a pastor. In between verse 11 and verse 15, he does what we call a parenthesis. So the entire text we read this morning is a parenthesis, is a bracket. Because from verse 11, he talks about loving the brother. And in verse 15, he begins to talk about loving the world. So what we see in verses 12 to 14 is in brackets. So he's taking a pause. Why? You see, John is not an academician. He's not merely interested in passing on theological truths because there's a kind of uh, reformed Christianity, quote and unquote, that, is, that seems to be merely about let us, let us pass through, let us pass through. But John is not just that. John is being a pastor. And his desire for these people is that they will be better after reading this letter. His desire for us is not that we'll be cut down, but that after we have read the entire episode, we would grow. You see, somebody once said sometime that we should change Psalm 23, we should revise Psalm 23, and instead of saying, the Lord is my shepherd, we should say, the Lord is my pastor. And actually, if we do that, we are not taken away from the scripture. The word pastor does not actually appear in the Bible. The word pastor is gotten from Latin, pastor. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, when we're talking about the fivefold ministry, you notice that many translations have now accurately translated it as shepherds. So the pastor is a shepherd. The pastor is a shepherd. The shepherd is not somebody separate from the pastor. The pastor is not somebody separate from the shepherd. And in Psalm 23, we see some of the things that Jesus, our pastor, would do. And that gives us a picture of what pastoral ministry is meant to be like. Sadly today, there's a, there seems to be a misunderstanding of who a pastor is. I used to have a friend then who would tell me that, say, if you want to ever become a pastor, you need power, you need power, you need power. And I said, okay, powerful, what, what exactly do you need powerful? What is the job of a pastor? What is the job of a pastor? The job of a shepherd or a pastor is to feed, to tend to the lamb, to build them up, to guard them, to see that they are growing, to feed them with Christ, to see that ultimately as time progresses, the people sitting under your ministry are being conformed to the image of Christ. And this is exactly what the apostle is doing. He understands that he's dealing with souls. And so his desire is that these Christians would grow up. He doesn't want to just smash them down and discourage them. He wants them to grow up. And more than that, he wants to show them something. 
he takes a break and the purpose of the break is, is sort of like a half time in a football match. When you've played for 45 minutes and the ref blows that there's half time, one of the things that happens, of course, is that you go back and re-strategize. If they are beating you 2-0, you don't want that to repeat itself. But one of the things that happens at halftime is that people get refreshed. You get refreshed, you take in juice, you take in water, you take whatever you need for the second part of the match. And so what John is doing is, is, is taking a half time, as it were, and he's trying to give them something to spur them on. Because the Christian life is a journey. And maybe they've been discouraged by what he has been saying up to chapter verse 11, and he wants to spur them on. But as we come to this text, we see that this text is not an easy text. In fact, this is one of the most difficult texts you can find in chapter 2 of 1 John. In the first place, if you notice in verse 12, the ESV says, I am writing to you little children. And if you come to verse 13c, it says, I write to you children. There's a difference between little children and children. The difference is not so much, but what the ESV is trying to do is to take into account the fact that John uses two different Greek words for children. If you read the King James Version, they put it the same. And so the question is, is John referring to the same people in verse 12 and in verse 13c, or is he referring to two sets of people? And great men, great theological, I mean, great scholars and pastors have not yet agreed on what John is doing. John Calvin's view on the text is different from A.W. Pink's view, which is different from John MacArthur's view, which is different from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, it's just, so how many categories of people is John talking to? Is John talking to two categories of people? Is John talking to three categories of people? Is John even talking to four categories of people? How do we come to understand the text? And to understand the text, we have to go back to this fact again and again, that the apostle John, as a writer, is a flowery writer. He's not like the apostle Paul. When you read the book of Romans, and Paul is trying to build his case, he goes from A to B to C to D to E. He's very logical. He's very linear. Whereas the Apostle John is very cyclic. So he goes over the same thing again and again, again and again. But in his cyclicness, he's making progress. So he's not just content to say, I write to you A, B, C, let's go. He goes over it again, putting some more colors on it, putting some more colors. You know, some people talk like that. They've said the same thing, but you have to restate it again so that you get some more flowers and some more flavor to what is being said. So John is a flowery writer. So when John is saying little children and children, he's referring to the same set of people. He's referring to the same set of people. So when we come to our text, we see that John is referring to three different categories of people. The first group of people John is referring to or writing to are the children. Verse 12a, I'm writing to you little children. Verse 13c, I write to you children. And the second category of people that the apostle is concerned with are the fathers. Verse 13a, I am writing to you fathers. Verse 14a, I write to you fathers. And the third and final category of people that the apostle is writing to are the young men. Look at verse 13b, I am writing to you young men. And verse 14b, 
I write to you, young men. So children, fathers, young men, if we were to put it chronologically according to how we would perceive it, children, young men, and fathers. And immediately the first thing that comes to your mind when you see those three categories is growth, is development. Anyone who reads this verse at first glance would seem to think, yeah, of course, John is trying to show something about stages of growth or stages of development. When we have a boy who is born, he's born as a child. Every boy, every man you see came forth as a child. And as a child, maybe he was playful. He was joking around. He was dependent on the father and the mother. He would go out in the morning and ensure that he comes back at night because it is at home that he will eat and sleep and receive care. But a time comes when the boy grows up into a young man. And then he steps out into the world. And he leaves the comfort of his father and his mother. And perhaps if he's in Nigeria, after a few years, he will start singing that song, Adulthood has come. But the thing with a young man is he has a lot of energy and a lot of strength. So what does he do? He goes out every morning to hustle. He wakes up in the morning, goes to hustle, goes to grind. He picks up two, three, four, five jobs trying to make ends meet. The characteristics of the young man is that he's full of energy. And then we have the fathers, those who are experienced. You know, I had some young men, some very old men in, in my former church where I was coming from. And one of the characteristics of very old men is that they love to tell stories. And so he would start telling us about the World War, about how he was, he was doing his scholarship in England. And start, he, start, he would start describing the boss in England. And he'd be looking at your time, Baba, two hours, three hours, four. And he keeps talking and talking. And he has, he has an advice for anything you have in life. And every single problem is one hour of advice. So if you're going to visit him, you have to clear your schedule. So sometimes he'll meet us in the street and say, ah, yes, why are, you not, are you not coming to visit me? He say, Baba, I'm coming, I'm coming. But of course, uh, we'll never go. So these are, these are the categories. So we can relate to this. These are stages of development in the life of a young man. A child, a young man in the life of a male, a child, a young man, and fathers. But we must be careful to understand that John is giving an analogy. In other words, John is not specifically relating or referring to age here in terms of normal passing of time. So John is not saying child, John, or Franklin, or Adora, or young men like Bro Sam, or Sister Tessie, or Bro Felix, then fathers like maybe our grandma. No, that's not what John is doing. He's not specifically talking about age. He's talking about maturity in the Christian faith. So when he's talking about children, when he's talking about young men, when he's talking about fathers, he's talking about development in the faith, not merely development in terms of age. You see, human age is relevant, is irrelevant rather, when it comes to spiritual growth, to spiritual maturity. The way the church works, the way Christianity works, is not the same way our culture works. In other words, a man can be 20 in the faith and be more matured than a man who is 60 in the faith. And the Bible gives us examples of this. Remember in the book of Job, when Job was afflicted, the Bible tells us that three friends of Job came to comfort him. Eliphaz, 
Bildad, and Zophar. And the book of Job actually gives us hints to show that these men were much older than Job. In Job chapter 15 verse 10, they told him that both the great head is here, people older than your father. You know, when somebody comes and say, I, I old past your father, the person is trying to say, you are a small boy. And so these three men were saying, we are old, we are old. But guess what? After pages and pages of their talk, they still could not give Job an answer to his problem. It was a young man called Elihu who came up and spoke on behalf of God. And the proof that Elihu actually spoke sense was that in Job chapter 42, when God was telling, was, when God was trying to rebuke the friends of Job, he rebuked only three, those three older men. Not the young man. I'm talking about young in terms of age. So what John is talking about is not in terms of age. Also, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews was writing to a church, and he says, though by this time you ought to be teachers. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say is that time has passed. You may have been a Christian for five years, for 10 years, for 15 years. Time has actually passed. And though by this time, by the ordinary passing of time, you ought to be teachers, something is wrong. Therefore, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles, principles of the faith. And we see this all over scripture. So when we talk about spiritual maturity, we're not merely talking about age. That's the first thing we must take note of. But more than that, we are not talking about knowledge per se. So when John is saying children, young men, and fathers, he's not talking about people who have knowledge. You know, in our day, knowledge is very prized. And the person who knows seems to wield a certain kind of power over the person who doesn't know. But when we look at the Bible, when we look at the Christian faith, knowledge is not what makes somebody matured in and of itself. And I like to use these illustrations a lot. And I say, many of the men who have abandoned the faith and who have gone on to propound certain kind of crazy theories, they, they are PhD holders. Many of them studied in conservative seminaries. They read all the institutes of Calvin. They read all the works of Owen. They read so much. They know so much. So when, whenever you bring a question, there's no question in the field of, there are people like that, actually. There, there's no question in the realm of theology that they don't have an answer to. But they can be just babes in Christ. John is not even relating to, he's not referring to activity. There's a tendency for us to think that the person who is always running up and down is the most mature, is the, most, is, is, is the, is the one who is strong in the Lord. No, that's not the case. And John is not even talking about spiritual standing. When I say spiritual standing, you know, in our, in our country, we have a set of people we call the fathers of the faith. And sometimes I try to understand you know, sometimes you just, you just say a lot of phrases in Nigeria, one of which is God's general. You say, one of God's general is here. And I'm trying to understand what is the qualification for being a general. Do you go and train for something? Maybe you go to a school, you go to a military school, and you are grounded. What is the qualification for you to say you are a father of the faith? And then we have this idea that if a man is a so-called father of the faith, then he has a kind of greater standing with God. So that whenever he speaks to God, God answers him faster 
than me that is a child in the faith. But John is not even talking about standing. Because when we are in Christ, all of us are, we have an equal standing. Romans 8 says that we are all co-heirs with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul was writing to the church. Yes, they had different categories of people, but he could still say in verse 6 that we are all seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What John is talking about is experience. Not age, not knowledge, but experience. What really differentiates the child from the young man and the father is his experience. What differentiates the father from the young men and the children is experience. But then we must be careful when we come to this text. There's a way to abuse it. We can begin to say, okay, the first category is children. Therefore, children, this is what you have, what the young men don't have, and what the fathers don't have. No. Or fathers, this is what you have that the young men don't have and the children don't have. People have actually done this to this text, but it's an abuse of the text. You see, John is writing basically about the position of the Christian man, woman, boy, or girl. John is writing about what every Christian should know. So when he says the children, your sins are forgiven, he's not saying the fathers, your sins are not forgiven. When he says the word of God abides in the young men, he's not saying the word of God does not abide in the fathers. I hope we're getting what I'm saying. John is actually talking to people, to a group of believers, and he wants all of them to know this. So what he's giving, despite the fact that he's recognizing that certain of them are in different stages in their walk with the Lord, but he's still giving them directives that will apply to all believers. And the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let's not forget, John is about to launch into harder things. We must reiterate this again. He's about to go into deeper things. He has told them about obedience. He has told them about love. And he has told them that the person who doesn't obey is, is, is a liar. And the word of God, the truth is not in them. And he has told them that the person who doesn't love is in the darkness. And he wants to go on to tell them about loving the world, about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But he takes a break because he wants them to remember certain things before he launches into deeper things. And the first thing he tells, the first category is, your sins are forgiven. Christians know practically of the forgiveness of sins. Not that the apostle is writing this in the past sense. Past tense. He says, your sins are forgiven. Not your sins will be forgiven. Or that you are hoping that sometime in the future, your sins may be forgiven. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is a reality in the Christian life. One of the greatest promises that comes with the gospel can be seen in Acts chapter 2. So on the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that the apostle Peter stood up among the disciples and he began to preach. And after he preached, the Bible tells us in verse 37 that the people who were hearing him, their hearts were caught. And they asked him, what shall we do to be saved? And he says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 
What does forgiveness mean? It means that all charges have been dropped. All charges have been dropped. You are rightly an offender. You are rightly deserving judgment. And you go before the person whom you have offended and he tells you that everything that you did to me, I don't hold against you anymore. I drop the charges. That's forgiveness. That I don't hold it against you anymore. Your debts are cleared essentially. Just yesterday I was on YouTube and the algorithm recommended to me a video. Maybe because, you know, it's, it's, we're in a very political season. So they recommended to me a video of something happened in January 2019 when Comrade Oshomole was doing campaign. And he said, when you come to APC, all your sins will be forgiven. And I began to laugh because that's not forgiveness. You know why? The day you act against APC, your sins will be resurfaced. All the things that were hidden, and this is not just APC, because across, this is Nigerian politics. Once you are friendly with those in power, your sins are forgiven. But the day you, you fight against that person, they will come to your house, and you'll be there recording on Instagram, that they are my house, they are knocking, they are knocking. Forgiveness of sins with God is not like that. It is not something that happens when God now says, okay, today you are a good person, you are forgiven. Then tomorrow, when you are not reading your Bible or praying, then you are no longer forgiven. Once God forgives us of our sins, he clears everything completely. The book of Psalms 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he taken our sins from us. God wipes, he wipes the slate. So it's as if you come, now, it's not as if God forgets. God does not forget. God is not, because when we think of forgiveness, we have issues, forgive and forget. No, God does not forget. But you know what God chooses to do? He chooses not to remember yourself. He chooses not to charge it on your account anymore. It is gone. Now, this is a reality for those who are Christians. But John doesn't just tell them about forgiveness. He tells them the basis on which this forgiveness is gotten. He says, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Forgiveness is based on the person of Christ and his work. We must understand this. Too often we think, have I cried enough? Have I wept enough? Am I I really feeling my sin? Is 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 it getting me? Am I broken to the ground, to the point that I will not eat? I'm in sackcloth and ashes. What John is saying is your forgiveness is not even dependent on you. It is dependent on the work and the person of another. In other words, God will not forgive any sin apart and outside the work of Christ. The day God will forgive somebody's sin because the person is crying very well. No, that will never happen. Forgiveness has to be on the basis of Christ. Why did Jesus leave the Father? Why did he leave his glory in heaven and come down to earth? For forgiveness of sins. Why did he live a righteous life and took that righteous life and offered it on the cross? Why did he die? Why was he buried for three days? Why was an innocent man 
shown real humiliation, enduring the scorn of sinners for forgiveness of sins. Why did he bleed and die? For forgiveness of sins. And the first thing John is telling this group of Christians is that your sins have been forgiven for the sake of Christ. Now, if you are here and you don't understand that, you can't call yourself a Christian. If we don't understand that our sins are forgiven, we can't call ourselves Christians. If I ask and you say yes, I'm going to ask you, on what basis is your sin forgiven? Too many people are in church and they believe their sins are forgiven because they did restitution. The wire that they wrote, they returned it back and went to write another wire. Because they stopped wearing trousers or they stopped putting a kind of haircut, therefore my sins are forgiven. Because they are checking certain boxes every morning when they wake up. My sins are forgiven. It is not enough to say, yes, your sins are forgiven. I will ask you, on what basis is your sins, have your sins been forgiven? Have you really come to Christ and put your faith in him, in his work? There is no forgiveness of sins outside of Christ. All these things people do in the name of earning God's forgiveness, they are but filthy rags. They don't count. They mean nothing. But then somebody might say, my sins are big. My sins are huge. I've done terrible things. I've broken all ten of the commandments. I've killed. I've stolen. I've committed adultery. I've coveted. I've lost it. I've done so many things. Can my sins still be forgiven? And even when sometimes we come before God, there's still this struggle to accept that your sins have been forgiven. And John wants to tell this people forcefully, your sins have been forgiven. If you have come to Christ, your sins have been forgiven. No longer, never to be counted against you anymore. When you go to this keyboard, you see that there are white and black keys or notes on the keyboard. And there's a style of music that is based on just the black notes of the keyboard. So without playing the white note, you can play that music on the black notes. For those of you who are musicians, it's called the pentatonic scale. And this style of music was generated by black people. We call them black spirituals. Black spirituals, just on those black notes of the keyboard. Or the, or the piano. Because you see, music for them was a way of expressing themselves. They, were, they suffered greatly. And there was a man by the name of John Newton who was a slave trader. In the life, not even in the life, in the career of Newton, because God saved him, he became a pastor and he had about 40 years of ministry. In the career of his, of, of his, of his slave trading, Newton Traded nothing, no, sorry. Newton traded thousands of slaves. Thousands of human beings. And some of you who have done a bit of history or study will know the kind of things that happen in slave ships. The kind of inhuman, inhumanity that those people experienced. But what happened to Newton? 
God saved him. The new thing that many people today in the West will want to cut his head off. If he has a statue, they'll go and bring it down and all manner of things. God saved him and God forgave him. And you know what? You know, he wrote a hymn, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He wasn't joking. He knew what he was saying. That he was a wretch. And what did God do to that wretch? God showed that wretch grace. And all of his sins were wiped away. And the music Amazing Grace was set to the tune of black spirituals. Till today, nobody knows who composed that song, that tune. Da, 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 da. Unknown. Nobody knows it. But see what God could do to a man that terrible. Forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. I write to you children because your sins have been forgiven. But he says I write to you children because you know the father. These are the same things. Because it is only in the forgiveness of sins that we know God as father. It's only when our sins have been forgiven in Christ that we can call God Father. It is not just a title we give because God is a man. No. It is in the forgiveness of sins. And the second category, he says, I am writing to you in 13b, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. 14b, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Again, John puts this not even in the past tense. He puts it in the perfect tense. Look at your Bible. He says you have overcome the evil one. You are not trying to overcome the evil one. You are not hoping to overcome the evil one. You have overcome. This is a fundamental reality of the Christian. That there is victory over sin and over Satan. Of course, we are not talking about perfectionism here. John is not teaching perfectionism. But at the moment a man is saved, Romans chapter 6, when the apostle Paul was writing on sanctification, and he says that sin shall have no dominion over you. You are dead to sin. So the moment a person comes into Christ, at that very moment, the reign of sin is broken. Sometimes we behave as though... Um, Sin is so powerful, sin is so big, that we are subject to sin. And you no, know, John is saying no. The, oh, it has happened. It's perfect. It's not even past. It has happened far, far, far back in the past. Sin has been defeated. Not just sin. The devil himself has been defeated in Christ. You see, this changes the nature of how we view our war against sin. We are not fighting from the point of whether we can lose, if you like, we lose, maybe we lose, maybe we win. No, we are fighting from the point of victory in our fight against sin. Not because of us, but because of what Christ has done. And he wants to encourage these believers with this truth. You must know this, that you have overcome the evil one. But he also shows us how we see this overcoming power practically. Two things. Verse 14, he says, you are made strong because you are strong. When we come into Christ, when a man comes into Christ, he receives power. 
The Christian life is not, I don't want to use, but maybe I should use this word. It's not in a sense a mediocre kind of life where you are powerless and you're running helter-skelter and the devil is all powerful. No, at the point when a man comes to Christ, there is power. There is power given to you. You know, sometimes we imagine this. We talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to put this in a way that will now go against what, because outside there, power is a different thing. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you know what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? He says, if you mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit, you will live. So in other words, there is a power that has been given to you in the Holy Spirit that can make you mortify the deeds of the flesh. Power. Secondly, he says, the word of God abides in you. He's talking about how to practically overcome in our daily lives. He said, the word of God abides in you. Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul calls this word the sword of the spirit. And how does the word help us? First of all, and I don't think this is possible aside from the word of God. We see sin for what it is. I don't think any man on earth can actually see sin for what it is outside the word of God. I have not seen that person. This morning we were looking at our Sunday school and talking about how we naturally, consciously take glory for ourselves. I don't think any man can come to the understanding that taking glory for himself is a sin if he doesn't come before the word of God. What the word of God does, it shows us what sin really is. One of the Puritans, Sam Venning, wrote in his book, The Sinfulness of Sin, that sin is worse than death. Because when a man dies, death simply separates you from your body, but sin separates you from God. It's worse than death. He said, it is better to die than to sin. You can't know that outside the word of God. The word of God also shows us the possibilities of the Christian life. It shows us that we can actually put off the old man. We can put it on. You know, sometimes when I read the imperative in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6, one of the things that struck, that always strike me is how Paul goes on saying, let us, let us, let us. The assumption that we have it in us to do it. Let us. Not let us try to do, no, no, let us put off. Let us walk in accordance to our vocation. Let us stop this. Let us begin to do this. John is trying to impress upon our hearts this fundamental truth. If sin has been defeated and the devil has been defeated, why do you think a Christian has any excuse not to obey God? What's the excuse? Because sometimes you give excuses. Okay, well, is indwelling sin in me? John is saying no. Your sins have been forgiven. Not just that. Even the devil has been defeated by Christ. And even sin, the reign of sin has been defeated. So if I'm telling you to obey the word of God, I'm telling you to love the brotherhood, and I'm telling you, as we'll see next time, not to love the world, I'm telling you because something has happened to you that will make that thing possible. The Christian man has no excuse. 
And the last category he addresses is the fathers. And he says in verse 13a, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Same thing he says in 14a, without any variation, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Who is John referring to? 1 John chapter 1 verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, the fathers have come to know Jesus. Applying it to all of us, we have come to know Jesus. You see, at the time John was writing, certain people began to teach funny things. And one of the things they taught was that you can't really know God like no God. It's not a normal thing that happens to us. And these men and women were Gnostics. So what they did was they went to Greek philosophy and they went to some pagan mysticism and they mashed it up. So true knowledge of God is something mystical that ordinary people like this cannot have. Actually, such a thing is happening again in our, in, our, in our Christianity where somebody talks about a dimension of God that has never been seen before. I wonder how you can say that. How old is the earth? How long have people been working with God? That a dimension has never been seen. And then if you want to understand that thing, you come to me because I'm the custodian of that dimension. And what John is saying is, see, if you have come to Christ and you've put your faith in him, you truly know him. There's no need for all these gymnastics going up and down that you want to know God. No, if you have come to him through Christ, you know him. So these are the three things that John wants us to know this morning. These are the three things he wants to strengthen us with as we continue our Christian journeys. Number one, that our sins have been forgiven. That our sins have been forgiven. The hymn writer says, our sin." Not in part, but the whole. Is nailed to the cross. And I count it no more. Secondly, that we have overcome the evil one and that we have received power really to defeat sin. And thirdly, that we have come to know God. But we notice again that John actually applies these general truths to three groups of people. As children, when we are young in Christ, the most important thing for us to know is that our sins are forgiven. That's the thing we need to know at that moment. We need to know that God has accepted us in his son, that God is now our fathers. That's the thing peculiar to babes in Christ. And we rely upon God for everything, for food, for milk, for drink. And there is a sense in which when a person comes into Christ immediately, God sort of shields him. God sort I mean, I can't explain it. God sort of just puts a, a kind of cover over that person, over him or her. But as you progress to become a young man, then you become aware of the fierceness of spiritual battles. And then you become aware of how terrible sin is. And as you continue to mature, you become aware of how wicked you are. And when we became Christians, eh, some of us didn't know how wicked we were. Until later on, you say, ah, am I this wicked? And then God begins to show you your own heart and by the word, by his word, show you what is inside. And then there's so much conflict and difficulty. And John is applying this to that group of people to tell them, you are not alone. God has given you power. He has made you strong to fight. God has given you his word that is to abide in you and be, as it were, an instrument in the war. And then he talks to the fathers. He says, there are some of us who are fathers. These ones have worked with Christ for a while. And they know something of deep communion with him. 
Things are not theoretical with them. One time, Charles Spurgeon was preaching. Charles Spurgeon was a, a 19th century Baptist preacher. And he was preaching on the faithfulness of God. And his grandfather, who was also a pastor, was in the congregation. And at some point, the man came up on the pulpit and he says, he said, my grandson can tell you. Charles Spurgeon was very young then. He was a, became a preacher at 17. He was very young. And he says, my grandson can tell you that. But I can bear witness to it. I have lived for 70 years. And I know of the faithfulness of God. You see, it's experience that marks this group apart. Not merely age. I have, I have know it. I know it. The fathers are those who are deep in communion with God. When we are using Bible reading plans, these men are firm in the word of God. Firm in prayer. Firm in service. Firm in obedience to Christ. And John has a word for each of these people. He is trying to spur them on. Before we think that we are so weak and feeble that we cannot live the Christian life, John says, no, look at all these things that have happened to you. We are without excuse. We are without excuse. There is no reason for us to say, oh, I'm so weak, I'm so defeated that I cannot serve God. No, your sins have been forgiven. You have Defeated, you have dealt with sin. Christ has dealt with sin in your life. And you know Christ indeed. And I pray that all of these words that John has given to us will serve as encouragement and as a push for us as we step into this new week to serve God. Amen.